Hello and welcome to Voice of Change. In this podcast, we break down the big issues in climate and sustainability. While support for action is increasing, climate change is a wicked problem that is overly complicated and the way forward not always clear. This podcast aims to give voice to those who can lead the way. In an era of distrust, scepticism and fake news, I bring you the experts and present you information, facts and interesting ideas with the odd dash of politics to spice it all up. This is Voice of Change and I am your host, Sophie Taylor-Price. Apologies, everyone, for the delay in this episode making it to your playlist. As you may tell by the huskiness of my voice, I've been a bit under the weather, and I completely lost my voice just a few hours after recording my last episode with Dr. Carl. I think I was just a little bit too excited. In today's episode, we continue on the same theme from last week and build on the ideas around why we are reaching the tipping points that require us to declare a climate emergency. This episode was meant to go to air last Tuesday, the same day thousands of people gathered on the lawns of Parliament House. It was the first sitting day of Parliament and our first chance since the bushfire crisis escalated to put the call to action out to MPs about the urgency that we're facing. The weekend prior, I had travelled to Kangaroo Valley to see the bushfire damage for myself. I saw that this was not like other fires. There was nothing but dust and ash and charcoal. There were no bees, there were no birds, there were no ants, there was no sound, it was just destruction. Seeing that damage, meeting survivors, was simply devastating. The extent of the damage, the lifelessness of the bush, was traumatising and it's something that I was utterly unprepared for. It left me feeling that that beautiful piece of the world may never recover and that healing may be impossible. I, I, I admit I cried half the way home on the drive to, back to Sydney and the only consolation was seeing just how resilient the Kangaroo Valley community is and how beautiful they are in coming together to support each other through this time of trauma. It really has brought out the best in people. That week was a turning point for me. Having interviewed two of Australia's leading and trusted scientists on the need to declare a climate emergency, then seeing Ground Zero, it was another point in time when my sense of urgency escalated once more and I've internalised the need for climate action further. As mentioned, in preparation for the rally, I also interviewed another key climate scientist, Dr Will Stephan. Dr. Will has a long and international history in the fields of Earth's system science and was the inaugural director of the ANU Climate Change Institute from 2008 to 2012. This interview was recorded in his home the week prior to the rally and again, apologies for the delay. Thank you and I hope you enjoy this episode. First of all, thank you for joining me today and speaking to me on on the podcast. Uh, perhaps to get started, um, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and the work you do in the climate space? Yeah, um, so I've been working in the climate space or more uh, appropriately the earth system space yep. for going on 30 years now. Mm-hmm. So it actually started uh, back in 1990 mm-hmm. uh, when I worked for an international program, had a very, very long geeky sounding name, the Inter- <laughs> International <laughs> Geosphere Biosphere Program. Mm -hmm. But basically that was a response to the World Climate Research Program. Now, that program was really looking at the physical aspects of the climate system. Mm -hmm. But scientists realized even back then 
that the biological aspects, the, the trees, the marine biology and so on, were very important regulators of the carbon cycle. And of course, the carbon cycle is absolutely central. Carbon dioxide, our emissions, what takes it up, all that sort of stuff. Mm. So I got into that starting basically working on the carbon cycle. Um, and I did that for um, about seven or eight years. And then I became director of the entire program. Uh, and that got me into working with everyone from people who worked in the atmosphere, ice, ocean. Wow. So I got a real feel for how the entire system mm. worked. So my, my background on climate change comes in sort of opposite from most other scientists. Most mm-hmm. other scientists really specialize in some area. They might be an atmospheric mm-hmm. physicist or they may be a, a marine um, circulation person or whatever. My, my background is trying to put all the pieces together and looking at how the system as a whole works. Fantastic. So I've done that now for about 30 years. Okay, so you've got a few, uh, few miles under your belt then. Um, the, the, the topic that we wanted to explore today, and you know, these conversations tend to have all sorts of rabbit holes that we, we go down, but really wanted to uh, focus on this idea of climate emergency. So it yeah. was, um, I think, the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year for 2019, and now with, you know, the bushfire crisis on um, a lot of people's minds and um, we're both going to be at the um, People's Climate Assembly rally next week. Uh, from your perspective, what do we mean by climate emergency? What does that mean to right. you? Right. Okay. It, it, it means two things to me or two ways that I look at that. One is the more immediate um consequences and impacts of climate change. The obvious example everyone is thinking about now are the massive bushfires around Eastern mm. Australia. So that's an example of, of a big step change in the level of impact that mm. now is really affecting people. It's affecting the natural environment. It'll obviously have econ- economic reverberations and so on. But it's not just a little bit worse. It's a big step change. Mm. Another example, which also comes from Australia, is the bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. This wasn't just a few more corals bleached. This was half of the reef killed by an underwater heat wave. So you go around the world and what you're starting to see now are step changes in climate impacts. Uh, So it's going from being sort of, well, things are a bit worse than they were 30 years ago to, whoa, this is just crazy. It's really bad. Mm. Uh, That's one way of looking at what a climate emergency is. Mm. The, The definition I prefer is actually a little bit more technical and a little bit harder to understand. Yep. Um, I work a lot on what are called tipping points mm-hmm. in the Earth system or the climate system. These are things like the Greenland ice sheet or the Amazon forest, which once they're pushed too far, they irreversibly change. Yeah. Uh, so once the melting of Greenland gets to a certain point, it's unstoppable because as it melts, it lowers in altitude. That puts it into a warmer climate where it melts, and that melts it even more, and you get this this reinforcing cycle, yeah. and it takes it out of human influence. To me, that's the ultimate climate emergency when we lose our ability to influence where the climate system is going. So, if we go back to that example, what's the consequence of that tipping point being reached? So that that consequence is it's dumping a lot of water, fresh water, onto the North Atlantic Ocean as mm. it melts. That's slowing down the North Atlantic circulation. We can already see that. Mm. That, in turn, dries out the Amazon. That, in turn, affects West Antarctica through the North-South circulation. So this gets us into what we call tipping cascades, that these Mm. tipping points are not isolated. They're linked. 
And science in the last decade has done a lot to understand how they are linked, how vulnerable they are, and mm. so on. So the ultimate climate emergency is if the time it takes us to intervene to stop these tipping points and tipping cascade becomes so short we can't react fast enough, mm. then we've lost the system. Yeah. And that's a true emergency. Yeah. So when you work back, you find that a lot of these tipping points, the time for intervening on them, for example, Arctic sea ice is probably close to zero. Coral reefs are probably close to zero. We've lost those. Mm. Amazon Basin may only be 10 years uh, before it tips, but, uh, but our reaction time now is longer than that. Mm. So we're approaching a point fast where we will lose our ability to influence where the Earth system is going to go. That, to me, is the ultimate emergency. So do you see 2020 as a critical year then? It is a critical year because on, on a lot of these uh, tipping points, we see now that our time left to intervene mm. is 25 years or less. And we're talking about 2050. That's 30 years. That's our reaction time to, mm. to, to where we could stabilize the earth. So that's telling me that even at, now at 2020, there's a reasonable probability, we don't know how much, that we're right now in the process of losing control, losing our influence. So the students, uh, Greta Thunberg and, and mm. her student movement, I think they intuitively feel and understand that they're reaching an emergency situation. Mm. Our job as scientists is to try to piece back what the science is telling us about how you might define an emergency. Just one analogy that will give people an idea of what I'm talking about is going back to the Titanic, the big ocean liner that was supposed to be um, absolutely impregnable and, mm. of course, hit an iceberg and, and, um, and sunk. But what happened there was by the time they actually understood that they were in a crisis situation, it was too late. They could not turn the ship in time. So they would have had to anticipate mm. where, that an iceberg might be there uh, and, in fact, turn the ship even before they knew for sure they were going to hit it. Mm. We're in that situation now. Mm. We've got a huge climate iceberg out there. We're approaching it at an increasing rate. Uh, and, and if we haven't already, we may soon reach the point where we cannot turn our ship fast enough yeah. to avoid the climate iceberg. Yeah. That's the analogy. So um, we spoke a little bit about the, the ice sheets. Are there any other uh, examples of tipping points that are important for people to understand? There are three types. One of them are the ice sheets. Mm -hmm. uh, the second ones are the big, what we call biomes, big, large ecosystems that are important for the earth as a whole. Mm -hmm. The Amazon rainforest is one of those. Mm -hmm. That's in the news because, of course, humans are directly deforesting that, mm. unfortunately, at an increasing rate with the change of uh, policy in Brazil. Uh, but that's also being influenced uh, by a drop-off in rainfall due to climate change, uh, and so it's got a double whammy. And so what happens if, uh, if, if we lose that big biome? We will emit um, a, a lot of carbon to the atmosphere. It stores a lot of carbon, uh, so it's going to be a big, what we call, uh, reinforcing feedback. Mm. It's, it's many years' worth of human emissions then that go back up the spout. That intensifies mm. the warming. That, that then increases the loss of ice, which changes the circulation, which dries the Amazon even further. So there's these cascades I'm talking about. All these mm. things are linked. A good analogy is if we put a row of dominoes on this table here in front of us, and I knocked over one or two, and then they just started going. And once you start that cascade, it's really hard to stop it. So you got big biomes like the Amazon and like the great northern forest across Canada and Siberia. 
Uh, and the third type are what we call circulation systems. One that's very familiar to Australians are ENSO, El Nino mm. events, and that's a combined atmosphere-ocean circulation system across the Pacific. And that's linked to what's ha- what happens in the Amazon and the North Atlantic. So um, we could see a situation where we get much more intense El Ninos or a lock-in of more El Ninos, which would be disastrous for us. So all of these are linked. It's the ice, uh, which of course is mainly at the poles. Mm. It's the big uh, ecosystems, biomes, and it's the way that the atmosphere and the oceans circulate around the planet. So um, in terms of these critical tipping points, what are the most relevant ones to Australia in terms of what could be within our influence and control? Okay, our influence and control is basically how we contribute to the global system. Uh, So we don't have a big land-based biome like the Amazon. So Brazil actually has a huge influence on that tipping point. Mm. We don't have a tipping point uh, sitting on Australia because we're basically a very dry continent and we're getting getting drier in the southeast. Um, Our influence is through our emissions. So our, our CO2 emissions and emissions of other greenhouse gases influence um, atmospheric conditions, influence the warming. The warming influences the Greenland ice sheet. It indirectly influences the Amazon. So basically, we're one interlinked system. So when it comes down to Australia's role in that, we actually have a much bigger role than people think. Uh, we've heard our prime minister say, well, we only emit 1.2 or 1.3%, so that doesn't matter. Uh, if you allow me to give you an analogy, my income tax is far less than 1.2% of the Australian income. So if I wrote to the ATO and said, oh, it's too small, it doesn't matter, I'm not going to pay it. Uh, the ATO would not be impressed. So what our prime minister doesn't realize is that this is what we call a collective action problem. Everyone has to do their fair share. But I want to make one other point is when you add in what we export, which is increasingly gas, but obviously a lot of coal, we become the fifth or sixth biggest emitter in the world. Mm. So, And we have control over that. We can choose not to export that. If we did that and got our own domestic emissions down, we would have a very significant impact on the global system. Mm. So we are a big player, uh, I think, no matter how you cut it. I've been following um, Christiana Figueres quite a lot recently. Um, She's my latest crush, I guess Mm -hmm. you could say. I think she's very inspiring in some of her messaging and also what she's achieved um, as a climate warrior. And she's got some really great messaging at the moment about, um, you know, the conversation isn't about whether I'm winning and you're losing. We're talking about a win-win, lose-lose situation. Exactly. We can't have a situation where um, you're winning and I'm losing because that's just not how this is going to roll. And so reshaping the the conversation, I think it's really important that Australia sees that. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, that's a really good point that, that she makes, and we see that even today as we're speaking, mm. in that um, for Australia it's a lose-lose situation. I mean, these massive fires are, be- are at least in part due to the fact that we are emitting at a very high rate per capita, mm. we are a big, big player in terms of our exported fossil fuels. So it doesn't matter where these fossil fuels, where this coal is burned, where this gas is burned, it's going to affect our climate. It's mm. going to make conditions worse for fires, for droughts, and so on. So that's, that's what we're talking about. So we lose, the farmers lose, people who live in the bush lose, 
people who live in cities lose. Uh, and, and so it is indeed a lose-lose situation. And particularly when we think about our children and grandchildren, the next generations, mm. we are damaging their future and we have no right to do that. So changing topic slightly, um, you know, next Tuesday we're going to be protesting. Well, by the time this episode goes to air, it's going to be today. <laughs> um, we're protesting and what the key objective for that, for that rally is um, that we want the federal government to declare a climate and ecological emergency. So, uh, you know, based on today's conversation and the conversation we had with Dr. Carl earlier this week, understand from a scientific perspective why we're making that challenge now. But I guess what does it actually mean if we were to have that declaration achieved? Like, is it just an act of symbolism or are there some practical implications that would flow through if that climate emergency was declared? First of all, uh, it is symbolic, but symbolic declarations can be extremely important. And they can be important if they motivate people to follow up with action that actually supports is a proper response to what might be an emergency situation. Well, what could Australia do, for example? And, and I immediately love to go to practical things. So let's just say in 2020, we declare there's a climate emergency. Let's set a target for 2030. Most people can get their heads mm. around one decade. So that's not that far in advance. How would you respond to an emergency with a 2030 timeline? I would suggest let's just focus on two things. One is let's get our domestic emissions, real emissions, cut in half by 2030. Now, we can actually do that. We've shown that in Canberra. South Australia is on the road to do that. Other states are moving. And we can do it because renewables have become so cheap uh, and you can roll them out quickly that if we decided to, we could decarbonize our electricity generation system by 2030. So that's one thing we could do. Second thing is we could stop any new fossil fuel development and we could start a phase out of our existing coal mm. mines and gas fields so that by 2030, we are exporting half of what we are exporting now. And that gives time for the companies to phase out alternative employment for people who rely on that. But importantly, we could say from 2020, no new coal mines are allowed and mm. no new gas fields can be developed. Uh, th th those could be done. Both mm. of those are feasible. They're not going to kill our economy. If done wisely, they'll probably help our economy and they'll help uh, distribute um, our economic um, activity to regional centers and so on by the nature of what renewable energy is. Mm -hmm. So this could be a positive development. And just those two things would be a very big step toward meeting a, a climate emergency situation. Thanks. That's a, a, a great uh, explanation. And I love practical as well. So having those two simple, although, you know, challenging um, practical examples, I think is quite uh, hopeful in terms of what could be achieved in a relatively short period of time. Uh, another change of tack, and uh, I suspect I'm going to um, get you worked up with this one because it got me worked up. I read an article in The Australian this week, and it started off by saying, and I'm going to quote, as soon as the words carbon footprint, emissions, pollution and decarbonisation, climate emergency, extreme weather, unprecedented and extinction are used, I know I'm being conned by an ignorant activist, populist scaremongering, vote-chasing politicians and rent-seekers. If we were going to play word bingo, I think we ticked all of the boxes <laughs> there. 
As a scientist, uh, how does that make you feel that, you know, that these, these sorts of statements are giving voice um, in our media? Um, and how do you think we should be countering the myths and the disinformation that is affecting uh, us achieving progress on climate action? Yeah, and those, those are very good questions. When, when you see someone writing in that vein, that, that actually says a lot more about themselves than it says about the people they're attacking because mm. it says they're using um, emotive jingoism uh, on their side rather than, than hard facts and scientific papers and well-reasoned economic analyses and technical assessments and all the things that are out there uh, by reputable people who know what they're talking about. Uh, and, of course, what this tells me immediately, I didn't need to know this, I didn't need to hear this to know already, uh, that The Australian is not, in my view, a legit, legitimate newspaper. Uh, it's obviously owned by Rupert Murdoch and that mob. Uh, same with Sky News and so on. Uh, these people obviously have an agenda, uh, as opposed to our national broadcaster, which I think does an excellent job of, of being uh, objective and, and professional. Uh, and that's something that you uh, learn very quickly in the scientific community, is that we must undergo what we call peer review. Um, everything that we publish... Uh, must be assessed by neutral reviewers. Uh, in most cases, we don't know who they are, mm. uh, and, and a lot of them are tough, and they should be tough, to make sure that we are doing everything properly. Uh, we're not overstating everything. We've got evidence to back up what we do. And so I think what, what that comment from, from the Australian tells me is there is an absolute lack of understanding about the difference between scientific knowledge and how it's generated and, and just opinionated crap that comes from people with a political point of view. Yeah. Uh, and so, so yeah, I don't get riled up about it. I just, just dismiss it and say, uh, it, you know, it is garbage. Now, having said that, it's actually dangerous garbage because it's wrapped up in something that looks like a newspaper mm. uh, and it's, it's wrapped up in something that looks like legitimate uh, commercial TV, Sky News. But in fact, these are people with an agenda. Uh, and it's, diff- it's getting increasingly difficult to counter that in this very noisy world now of fake news, alternate facts, all this stuff. And I suspect it's going to get worse as time goes on. I mean, I remember when I was a kid growing up, you know, the Australian was seen as, you know, the trusted newspaper. Um, it's really hard for me to reconcile now. And I, I saw that, I took a photo and I'm like, just how, how, how can we allow that? Anyway, um, you, you've got more maturity than I, <laughs> not getting worked up about it. I certainly did. Um, uh, another question around where we're currently at and, and the emotion, like the level of emotion that that in, it surrounds this topic because I'm a, a little bit torn uh, and I, I had this same conversation with, with Carl um, when I interviewed him in that, you know, on one hand we hear that um, we, you know, we're, we're running to the edge of a cliff, we're, we're reaching these tipping, tipping points, um, they're... There's this sense that we're coming to a point where it's not just about catastrophic damage, it's an existential crisis. And that is quite paralysing. And I think when we talk about climate anxiety, and you mentioned um, Greta before, I think that there is, when you, when you actually step back and look at the crisis, um, it can be quite paralysing once you understand the complexities of everything and, you know, how do we balance out this sense of urgency um, and the scale of the challenge without 
you know, triggering that sense of hopelessness and climate anxiety. Um, I'm particularly concerned about younger people who genuinely sure. are feeling it. But yeah. it, there's a balance. How do we reconcile that balance? Yeah, look, I think I think the um, best way to look at it is is people like uh, scientists and others, experts. We really can't give people hope. Our, our job is like your physician is to diagnose what the mm-hmm. what the problem is yep. and not sugarcoat it. Mm. So if you're if you're in the early stages or even more advanced stages of cancer, what you don't want is your physician to tell you take a couple aspirins and and go back. I don't want to give you bad news, sort of thing. A good physician would tell you, here's your issue. And I've had a couple of cases where I've had life-threatening life situations. I had one at, at Canberra Hospital where uh, I, I just by, by a terrible accident, I had a very minor surgery, but mm-hmm. I got an extremely powerful uh, bacteria by accident into mm-hmm. my bloodstream. And um, the head of the, uh, the uh, infections unit at Canberra Hospital came by. Uh, and he didn't mince any words. He didn't say, oh, well, you know, you're a bit sick. He said, uh, we just diagnosed this. This is life-threatening. This could kill you in 24 hours. He said, we know how to deal with it. You do everything we tell you. That mm. was it. There wasn't, nothing was sugar-coated, and it was yep. put on the table and, and, and said the consequences are you're going to lose your life if we don't get this under control, mm. and here's what to do to get under control and don't cut any corners. You do exactly this. Yeah. So, so, so I, think, I think medical um, crises are good examples because mm. – the consequence of a really bad medical situation is you lose your life, uh, but you have experts there. Their job isn't to sugarcoat you or give you hope. They, you, you get hope by doing what they tell you to do. Take the action that yeah. you need to take. Uh, so I think that's the way is, is we're planetary physicians. That's mm. what climate or system scientists are. We diagnose what's actually happening, not what you would like to hear. Yeah. That's our job. Having said that, there are a lot of people out there who have come up with very good solutions if you like what your medical doctor says you do this and this and this mm. we're not following them yeah and that's the problem so the problem i don't think is with the basic science the problem is with there there are fundamental changes that you have to take mm. again going back to medical examples someone may really have to do very big changes to your lifestyle mm. to keep your health and the doctor will tell you that yeah and you say i really like my lifestyle i really don't want to change well then you take the risk that you're going to go under same with our society. We're being challenged now to say we have a very dangerous lifestyle, mm. but there are strong vested interests that want to keep that lifestyle. And in my view, they're the ones that are blo- blocking the action. So we need to reach, I talk a lot about tipping points. I yeah. already have. We need to reach a social political tipping point yeah. that kicks these people out and say, you've had your day. We need to go a different direction. I, uh, I really like the um, medical analogy. I think it makes it quite clear. I think the challenge is that, you know, some of the um, choices and actions and following the doctor's orders um, are political and policy issues. Absolutely. But, you know, part of, and I think that contributes to some of the powerlessness that people feel, particularly younger generations. But not everything is in the control of, of government. There's, there's a lot that sits within the realm of personal action. Um, what are some things that, you know, everyday citizens can do to follow the doctor's orders? What are some easy ways to change our behaviour? Um, acknowledging that sort of broader social political changes also need to occur. What, 
when we looked at the individual, what's within their influence and control? Yeah, my take on this is a little bit different from most people because yep. um, I view this primarily as a collective action problem and mm-hmm. that there's a, very, there's a very big limit on what um, individuals can do. Mm. Uh, there are obvious things and there's heaps of written, written about this. Uh, you can you can change to a more efficient vehicle. You can walk and cycle. You can take public transport. Mm. Uh, my wife and I moved in into here about 20 years ago from the suburbs of Canberra. We rarely use a car. Uh, we we tend to walk around Canberra. We use public transport, uh, which has been vastly improved in the last few years in Canberra and so on. Mm. Changing diets, we're eating a lot less meat, which helps health and so on. But I think a really big thing is we like to talk to people. Say, you know, what what can you do? I do a lot of work with local the local government here and i'm very pleased to say that canberra now is 100 percent renewable we did it in nine years mm. we did it under budget and we have some of the lowest electricity prices yeah. this is a good example of what citizens can do in terms of collective action they can influence their government to do this there's an interesting story that um, the um, trigger for this was actually young people's movements a decade mm. ago led by a young woman named phoebe howe who influenced an election with the slogan, Canberra Loves 40, which is a 40% reduction by 2020. Mm. Caught on, went viral, helped tip the election, and the government delivered. Um, And that's a success story, but it had a lot of citizen involvement all the way through. So people can get together with their local neighborhood groups in their own city, their own precinct, whatever, and start influencing people at that level. Uh, So I think it's really important. And, And that actually... You, 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 get, you make friends, you get, to, you get groups of people. That gives you hope. That gives you encouragement. Uh, and when local members start saying, oh, my voters are getting organized, mm. then I better start listening. Yeah. So, so this is the way a democracy should work. Mm. Uh, and there's a lot that can be done sub-national. Uh, South Australia is a good example. They've now got a bipartisan support. The government changes from Labor to Liberal, but they're still going gung-ho on renewable Getting, getting on top of the climate change issue. There are a lot of models, sub-national in Australia, that, mm. that are good. Mm. The big blockage still, it's the big end of town. It's the fossil fuel industry. They've got this federal government under their thumb. Mm. And that's where citizens have to stand up and say, we can't have this anymore. So turning up to rallies and Absolutely. protests is important because it gives voice to... Yes, and, and lob, lobbying your local member. Local members are sensitive. If you write a personal letter, if you say, mm. I want to come in and talk to you, uh, and if that starts building up, they will pay attention. Mm. And if it's on your, it's off your own back, not an organized movement, say, I'm getting fed up, I'm going to contact my local member. Australia still has one of the best democracies, even though it's getting perverted by Murdoch and the big end of town. But we still do, and, and we should use that as an opportunity to put pressure on, on the federal politicians. Yeah, and I, I think an interesting example of that, of what I call the aqua movement, you know, green plus blue, mm-hmm. uh, is Warringah in the last election. Yeah, and Zali absolutely. Stable. That's I a great think, example. Great example. And I think I'm going to have to get Zali onto the show at some point to, to talk that through because I think that it is a symbol of the changing shift in, in politics around where traditional, like, political identities once lie and that it is becoming a bipartisan issue and it's going to disrupt yeah. um, no. the identity of politics. Yeah, but, you know, a, a, a podcast for another episode. Um, look, one last question, and, and I think that this is a really important one to be asking, um, and that is given that we are getting so close to 
these undoable tipping points. Um, and the window for action is, is narrowing. What gives you hope that we can get this right? Yeah, that, that's a good question because I talk a lot about tipping points. That's my main area of research mm. these days. But there are also social tipping points that can happen fast. Mm. Uh, and I'm hoping that these fires are a major factor in triggering one here. Mm. Um, your your um, example of Warringah is a very good example. I, th I think that we're seeing a movement away from the entrenched parties on both sides toward more independent, hopefully more independence uh, that can influence the political system toward let's forget about identity politics let's just look at the issues that we need to deal with and let's deal with it as sensible citizens rather mm -hmm. than being a member of the labor party or the liberal party or the nats or whoever you want to be a member of mm -hmm. that's that's important too but this this social tipping point a, a, a recent example is the marriage equality vote in australia that blindsided the government because they never even realise that 70% of Australians were going to vote for that, including a lot of their voters. Mm. So, so we need to get to this climate tipping point to say, look, this is beyond partisan politics. We've got to ensure that we have a planet and a country we can live on. Mm. You know, and, and there's a lot, lot we can do. You know, I've mentioned the cut our emissions in half by 2030. We can do that. The technology's there. So let's get to that tipping point to just demand that no matter who's in power, they deliver on that. So it's the social tipping point that really gives me hope. But that'll only occur if people really get active, write to their members of parliament, get out, go to demonstrations and so on, um, get out in the streets and support the students, put the pressure on the system to say where the system's going now is intolerable. We simply won't, we won't, um, we won't tolerate this anymore. Look, and that's what gives me hope. I, um, I feel it, and maybe it's, it's overly optimistic, but again... Um, Referring back to Christina, Christiana Figueres, yeah. is, you know, that uh, optimism is, is a, a mindset. And I, I feel that 2020 is the year that we, we do reach that social tipping point yeah. here in Australia. And as devastating as it is that the bushfires are what created, sorry for the pun, the burning platform, it, I think it, that it exactly. has. Exactly. It yeah. cr it's created the space and platform in which we can start talking about these things and have to talk about them. Yeah. And I think also the opportunity for people in set positions to rethink those positions. Exactly. And that's what I'm hopeful for. Anyway, this has been a fabulous conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much My for pleasure. joining me on the show and inviting right. me into your home. Um, I'm very much looking forward to seeing you in front of Parliament House next Tuesday. Should be good. It should be fun. See you there. <laughs> Okay, thanks. So thanks. Much, Bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on this week's episode of Voice of Change. A reminder that the views of everyone on this show are their own and not necessarily representative of the organisations they work for. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, please like and subscribe. And if you have any suggestions about the show, please feel free to reach out to me on my website, sophietaylorprice.com, or on Instagram or Twitter. I really look forward to breaking down the big issues with you again next week. Until then, bye for now and see you on the flip side.